and Webster Dictionary has a definition of cancel culture. The practice of tendency or engaging in mass canceling as we've expressed in disapproval and exerting social pressure on a person or a company, for example, uh, Target, many people are canceling Target based on things that they sell or Bud Light for different people that are promoting their product. Uh, back in the 80s, uh, ironically enough, Christians kind of started the whole canceling culture with, and they called it boycotting. And I remember um, back in the day when I was going to a dance, um, I wanted to get a Liz Claiborne suit, but my mom said, you can't buy Liz Claiborne because money of Liz Claiborne goes to uh, devil worship or something like that. Supported some random thing that I never really knew or saw proof of, but for whatever reason, in the 80s and 90s, Christians were canceling Liz Claiborne. Um, but back then, it was companies or suits or things like that. Um, today, people get canceled over all kinds of things like Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, R. Kelly, for different abuse and scandals they were a part of. People stopped watching the Cosby show, people stopped listening to R. Kelly's music, and then even like random people that you may not even heard of, like a person named David Shore. You may be thinking like, who is David Shore? Um, but David Shore, faced criticism on Twitter after he tweeted a study from an academic journal questioning political consequences of violent and peaceful protests. Shore, who tweeted the link during the George IV protests, was fired, though the, campel, though the company said it wasn't over a tweet. Back in the Bible, they used the word unclean. Today, we use the phrase, you're canceled. And if we don't like someone, if we don't like something, we stop buying their product, we stop, listening to their per we stop listening to their messages or movies or whatever it may be. However, in Jesus' day, they used the term unclean. And unclean would refer to things like this. Only flawless animals were sacrificed. Only physical, normal priests could serve. Only people in normal conditions can worship. Only normal clothing can be worn. Only normal houses can be inhabited. The interesting thing, when I think of the word normal, I think normal is a, is a setting you use to dry your clothes. I think normal is a very poor word to describe people or places. Um, but in, in Jesus' day, there was a lot of strict rules, there was a lot of strict laws. And if you were unclean, then you were canceled. Just to give you an idea, if you were deemed unclean, you couldn't come to church. You couldn't be part of the church. And if a rabbi did something that was unclean, he, his whole ministry could have the potential of being canceled. And the interesting thing, I think, is this. I think in today's culture, I think there's a whole lot of Christians who care more about what Christians think than caring about what Jesus thinks. You know, so many times you think, well, what are they going to think if you do that? What, what are they going to think if you go there? What are they going to think if you eat with this person or hang out with that person? Jesus didn't care. Jesus' opinions didn't stop him from doing miracles and from doing healing. And all the people that Jesus healed in chapter 8 in Matthew, in this portion of scripture we're looking at, all were deemed unclean. So let's take a look at it in Matthew 8. Who the world cancels, Jesus heals. I'm grateful for that. Matthew 8, verse 14 and 15 says this. By this time, they were in front of Peter's house. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. On entering, 
Jesus found Peter's mother-in-law sick in bed, burning up with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever was gone. No sooner was she up on her feet than she was fixing dinner for him. Clearly, his mother-in-law was probably Italian, and they wanted them to have seconds. All right, But this was a big deal. This was a big deal. It seems like pretty innocuous, like just Jesus doing a healing. And, and we're so used in our culture that when you pray with someone, you either put your arm around them or put their arm on your shoulder. You do like a, you know, one of those Christian side hugs and pray. But Jesus, by touching Peter's mother-in-law as a rabbi, that would be scandalous. Because as a rabbi, you don't touch a woman that's not your relative. So other rabbis never would have done this, never would have touched Peter's mother-in-law, but Jesus did. And if Jesus touched this woman, he would be considered unclean, but Jesus didn't care what the religious scholars thought of him. Peter's mother-in-law was important, more important than people's perceptions. And it, and it explains why Peter's mother-in-law would be so compelled to like want to do something for Jesus, because she realized that this was such a rare act, that a rabbi would touch her while she was sick. And so you kind of give an understanding of, what can I do to pay him back? Well, let's cook. Let's have a meal. And this act was so compelling that word spread quickly. And then in verse 16 and 17, it says this, that evening, so this, this like party that Peter's mother-in-law was putting on, this food, um, hopefully she made a lot, because that evening a lot of demon-affected people were brought to him. So, I mean, could you just imagine this setting? All right, Peter's like, oh, man, I got to heal my mother-in-law. All right, Jesus comes, he heals her, she starts making a meal, and then all of a sudden you start getting, like, knocks at the door. <laughs> and it's like all these people wanted healing too. Demon-affected people. I don't know about you, but if, like, a demon-possessed person knocked on my door, I'd be like, Shut the lights, close the blinds, like, we'll just thoughts and prayers, you know. We're, we're not really home. It'd be like Halloween back in the day. Like Halloween back in the day when I was growing up, uh, I couldn't go trick-or-treating. We had to close the blinds and shut the lights and pretend like we weren't home, even though people knew we were home. But anyways, Jesus, Peter, Peter's mother-in-law, his disciples, they didn't do that. That evening, a lot of demon-affected people were brought to him. He relieved their inward... And he, he relieved the inward tormented. He cured the bodily ill. He fulfilled Isaiah's well-known revelation. He took our illnesses and carried our diseases. That sense of touch, that intimate type of relationship that's going on here. This prophecy that was said in Isaiah, I probably could believe that during that day, the religious scholars didn't think that this Prophecy of he took our illnesses and carried our diseases included unclean people, included canceled people. But that's just, that's just how Jesus works. You know, the people that society calls outcasts or marginalized, Jesus calls them insiders. All can be touched by Jesus. All can have a relationship with Jesus. It's not just for some, it's for all. And it's so interesting. Outrageously, he forgave persons. He healed, especially on the Sabbath. He ate and hung out with social outcasts. He challenged the temple practices and sacrifice that exploited the poor. All acts of compassion and grace. And this is what I find so compelling about Jesus. But they threatened the established and religious order of his day. God's prophetic grace in action. Grace in action. 
Grace, by definition, is unearned and unmerited. There's nothing you can do to deserve it. There's nothing that Peter's mother-in-law did to deserve this healing. There's nothing that these demonically possessed people did to deserve it. But we do this, right? If something bad happens in our life, well, I'm not praying enough. If something happened that we didn't expect that maybe was... We, we seemed unfair, well, maybe I'm not reading my Bible enough, and we put these expectations on our lives that if we read enough, pray enough, worship enough, attend church enough, give tithes enough, then all of a sudden we've earned this, like, magical favor where there's more healing, there's more blessing. Jesus heals whether you deserve it or not. Jesus loves you whether you are a sinner or not. Romans 5 talks about that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we had it all together, he died for us. Before we had it all together, he loves us. A stark contrast to an American gospel where it's like, it's deserved. You've earned this. I'm glad for grace. I'm I'm glad that Jesus still loves me and gives me favor when I don't deserve it because I mess up a whole lot more than when I get it right. Grace, by definition, unmerited, unwarranted, is a free gift built into our DNA, just waiting for us to discover it there. But that's the real challenge. We cover over, even smother, that grace every time we embrace the notion that we need to earn God's favor. We need to earn his approval. Grace isn't earned, it's given. And that's our culture. You do a good job, you get a raise. You do a good job, In school, you get scholarships. We're, like, conditioned to be rewarded based on our behavior. But that's not Jesus. And I'm grateful for his grace. Yeah, there's times when you sow and you reap. Of course, those things happen. But what happens when you mess up? What happens when you miss the mark? Jesus doesn't love you less. I think in those moments when we miss the mark, he's even closer than we realize. But do we walk in that grace? You know, there's that famous phrase, but for the grace of God go I. That sense that God goes with us, even in the difficult, dark places, whether those places that have been put on us or we place ourselves in, God still goes with us. And it's interesting in this passage where Jesus heals the sick, Jesus healed the demonic. demonic. After this, Jesus and his disciples go on a boat ride. And there's this famous scripture where Jesus calms the seas. And we think, oh, this major miracle is how Jesus calmed the storms. Well, maybe in between this message of healing the sick and healing the demonic, maybe Jesus really wanted to heal hearts of the disciples. So let's take a look further on in this passage in Matthew 19, and then in 25 to 26 to 27. When Jesus saw that the curious crowds was growing minute by minute, so now um, Peter's mother-in-law, she had to clean out some rooms because it was a party. There was tons of people, crowds of people, almost like Taylor Swift at the Taylor Swift concert. Um, the cra- it was sold out, and there was 20,000 people in the parking lot who didn't pay for a ticket, who just wanted to hear her. Okay, that's like, if people were, 20,000 people in the parking lot for Taylor Swift, there was people in the parking lot for Jesus during this time, too. All right, that's the type of scale of what was going on here. They couldn't get in the house. They were around. The crowds were gathering, all right? Just like this culture loves T-Swift, this generation, th- this culture loved Jesus Christ, all right? This is the type of fervor and celebrity and attention and popularity that Jesus had during this time. 
When he saw the curious crowd was growing minute by minute, he told his disciples to get him out of there and go to the other side of the lake. Then they got into boat, his disciples with him. The next thing they knew, they were in a severe storm. Waves were crashing onto the boat. We sang it today, wave after wave, or we're going to be singing it later. Waves are crashing into the boat, and, he's, and, he, and Jesus, while the waves are crashing into the boat, Jesus was sound asleep. Jesus is different. They roused him, pleading, Master, save us, we're going down. Jesus reprimanded him, Why are you such cowards, such faint hearts? Then he stood up, told the wind to be silent, the sea to, be, the sea to quiet down, silence. The sea became as smooth as glass. I like how the message says this, smooth as glass. And I've been on some rough waters. And let me tell you something. I don't know if any of you have been on boats. It is not good. I remember going on a fishing trip with one church, and it was right after a storm. Um, I did not catch any fish. I did not have a good time. I was laying on a bed somewhere, like, praying not to throw up. And then I went in there, and then other people went in there. The whole middle of the boat of this, like, awesome, like, boat trip was full of people just lying down because they were sick. I mean, that's what happens when you're on these rough seas. It, it paralyzes you. The men rubbed their eyes, astonished. What's going on here? Wind and sea stand up and take notice at his command? So this whole scene, Jesus compels them to go out into the sea. They're in the middle of the storm. He tells the disciples are freaking out, even though they are professional, like, fishermen. Like, this was their job. This was their profession. They, they weren't, you know, people that were following, like, their profession wasn't to be pastors or rabbis. Their main profession was fishermen. Like, this was their thing. They were built for this. And yet they were freaking out because of how bad this, the storm was. And then Jesus is sleeping. <laughs> Jesus is sleeping, and it's so interesting, and there's a lot of theories of why was Jesus sleeping during this storm, right? Like, wouldn't you think if Jesus told him to get into this boat, and the disciples were apprehensive, and the storm was coming, wouldn't you think Jesus would be, like, on watch? Wouldn't you think he'd be, like, where well, nothing's going to happen to this boat? Jesus was sleeping, and there's a couple of theories of why Jesus was sleeping, according to some religious scholars. Some of them think this is a connection to Jonah. Jonah was a type of Christ who went to a land to reach a people that didn't deserve it. Jonah was on the boat asleep, and then there, and so there's that connection to Jonah. They make a connection to Jesus' humanity. He was fully God and fully man, and he was simply tired from ministry. He was healing a lot of people, doing a lot of good. Jesus was simply exhausted. And then there's another theory that Jesus was, this is to show Jesus' divinity, he was fully man and fully God, and he knew that his time hasn't come. He wasn't going to die in a boat, so why stress about it? I'm going to sleep. We're going to make it through it somehow. But I think there's a fourth thing going on here of why he was sleeping. I think it's to make a connection to the hearts of his disciples. He said coward, and in that word coward, in Latin, it really means doubt. And there's a couple of different Greek words for doubt, all right? There's testazio, sounds kind of Italian, testazio, which means undecided in belief or opinion. Undecided in, in an opinion of belief, testazio. But this Greek word is appetista. All right, clearly, I love this Italian. I'm like thinking appetista, I'm like appetizers, let's go, all right? But appetista, this word actually means to hesitate, to believe. 
So one means undecided, the other one means to hesitate. Maybe the disciples, maybe Jesus reprimanded the Jesus, maybe Jesus reprimanded the disciples not because they doubted him, but because they doubted themselves. Maybe Jesus was asleep because he trusted them and he knew that they could get him through. It was his idea to get into the boat. The disciples didn't want to go. And the Greek word where it talks about that Jesus persuaded, like told them to get into the boat, the Greek word is actually means persuaded them, convinced them. They were fishermen. They knew how to read weather patterns. They knew that this was not a good time to go. But when Jesus says go, you got to go. And if Jesus says go, there's a reason to go. He believed, he knew that they can get through the storm. But they didn't believe that they can get through the storm. Because on the other side of the shore, people that needed to be healed too. When they got off the boat, they were healing others that were demon-possessed that needed to be impacted by Jesus' love and Jesus' healing. But the disciples doubted when Jesus believed. You know, sometimes when we think about cancel culture, we think about canceling others. But sometimes I think we cancel ourselves and use words like imposter syndrome. Use words like, I can't be good at this job. I can't be good at this school. I can't be good as a parent. I can't be good as a husband. I can't be good at this. And we cancel ourselves, and we think of all of the reasons that we're going to mess it up. When Jesus looks at us and sees all the reasons why we can get it right, Jesus believes in us even when we want to cancel ourselves. If you are where you are, and it is a hard place, and it is a tough place, Maybe Jesus has you there for a reason because he wants to do something in you. And if God wants to do something in us, oftentimes God wants to do something through us. Maybe the storm that Jesus healed was not an external one, not just an external one, but maybe it was an internal one. Maybe these disciples, maybe Jesus knew that these disciples needed to come to a place where they can start believing in themselves where they can start carrying out this mission without Jesus. Jesus knew that his time was coming soon. And Jesus even told him, greater things will you do. And as a teacher, you want to do that. You want to prepare your students for difficult times. You want to prepare them to give them the skills to carry it out beyond the time you have them in class. I'm a teacher. That's what I want to do. And one of the phrases I tell my, my students all the time is, trust yourself. Trust yourself. But sometimes it's the hardest thing for a student to do. And when a student starts trusting themselves, it's an amazing thing that takes place. You know, and I was thinking about this verse, and I was thinking about this story, and it really came, I really started to see this story from a different perspective when I was driving with Clayton through a storm. It was like a couple years ago, and I had to pick up Keen, and it was just me and Clayton in the car, and my phone was dead, and the storm was coming, and when it stormed, I mean, it was raining really bad. And where's Clayton? Asleep in the back of the car. And it's like, and you know when it's a really bad storm? When, like, I used to drive like this. I'm starting to drive like this. Two hands on the wheel. I turn down the radio. I turn down the volume on the stereo because somehow turning the radio down while you're driving helps you see better and, like, see things better. I don't know why that is, but you know it gets real when you turn off the radio, right? So I turn off the radio. I got two hands on the wheel. All right, I'm like, I, like, put the seat up. I'm like this. Driving like this, all right? I mean, and it is hard to see. It is pouring down, lightning. I mean, it, and we get to this one part in the road where water is starting to flood the street. 
And I, know, I only know one way how to get there. My phone's off, and I'm like this. And I'm like parked right there. I'm like, do I go through this thing? Do I turn around? And then all of a sudden, Clayton wakes up. And he's like, Dad, can you see? I'm like, yeah. He's like, Dad, do you know where you're going? I'm like, yeah. He's like, okay. And he went back to sleep. He trusted me that I can get through the situation. That was good enough for him. Maybe Jesus does that with us. He's in our car. And he says, I know where you're going. I know you can get through this. And him just having that confidence in me, I was like, all right, let's do this. And I like went right through that road that was like a little bit flooded, and we made it through. His confidence enabled me to get through that storm. If Clayton can have that confidence in me, I can get through it. If Jesus has that confidence in you, you can get through it. Jesus picked these disciples. He knew what they were capable of. Jesus chose you. He knows what you're capable of, especially when it's hard, especially when it's tough. He believes in you, even in those moments when we don't always believe in ourselves. Mark 9, 23 says this, everything is possible to someone who has trust. Everyone is possible to someone who believes. I like that, that translation from, from, from the Jewish Bible. Everything is possible to someone who has trust. And when we pray, when we believe, there's this powerful connection where it's not just words. It can't be just thoughts and prayers. All right? There has to be actions to our belief. All right? Noah still had to build the boat. David still had to use a slingshot. Esther still had to enter the throne room of the king, risking her life. Jesus still had to die on a cross. And even Jesus was struggling with this idea. It talks about where it says, if this pass can cup, but not my will, your will. It's important to pray. But in that prayer, know that God wants to use you in those moments as well. God wants to use you. It's not just words. It's not just thoughts and prayers. That's a political statement. It's not a Bible verse. All right? We pray, and we take that step of faith. We pray, and we put ourselves out there despite what the perceptions of other people may be. We pray, and we care about what Jesus thinks more than what other people or Christians believe. I want to close with this quote by Henry Nguyen, if Marissa, you want to come. Henry Nguyen is an author and theologian, and I like this quote about prayer. Ooh, we even got the air conditioner. Come on, how about that timing? I'm just kidding. I remember, like, growing up, like, being in worship service, and you get, like, the warm fuzzies, the spirit was moving, and you're like, I don't know if this is God or the air conditioner kicking on. Maybe it's a little bit of both. But I like this quote from Henry Nguyen. It says this. To pray is to listen to the one who calls you my beloved daughter, my beloved son, my beloved child. To pray is to let that voice speak to the center of your being, to your guts, and let that voice resound in your whole being. 
the real work of prayer is to become silent and listen to the voice that says good things about me. Good things about you. We got enough people in this world telling us how bad we are, how we don't measure up. Maybe we need to silence those verse, those voices and pray and let God's love and let God's voice be the one that says, you're called, you're good, you're capable, you are empowered, you can do this. The world may say you can't. Your parents may say you're not good enough. Your boss may say that you're not qualified enough. Your teacher may say that you're not smart enough. But Jesus stands with you in your boat and trust you to get it to the shore. Trust you that you can. Trust you that you are smart enough, that you are qualified, that you are good. You know, it's so interesting when we read about the creation story. You know, I was teaching the creation story to my students. And it's so interesting when you read the creation story, when Jesus, when God goes through the days of creation, after each day, he said it was good. But then God got to the last day of creation, and he made people. He didn't just say it was good. He said you were very good. Why does God make that distinction? Because we carry the very image of God with us and in us. We are made in the image of God, and I think sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we think we're made in the image of our parents, or we're made in the image of culture made in the image of these influences that we put on ourselves, but we are made in the image of God, and God doesn't make junk. You have a purpose. You have a plan. You are not an accident. I hate that. I hate that phrase. Oops, baby, or accident. No, there are no, there are no accidents to life. You're here, you're here for a reason. One of my favorite quotes, I'm going to another quote, is from, uh, Eagles quarterback, Jalen Hurts. And when people said that he wasn't good enough when he was replaced his senior year by another, his junior year by another quarterback in the championship game, benched in the championship game. When he was passed over in the draft in the first round and people when, they were, when he was drafted criticized him saying he wasn't good enough. But then last year before the Super Bowl, he was having a press conference and they were asking these questions about his past, about being overlooked and being benched. And he said this quote, and, and, and it stuck with me. He said, I have a purpose before anyone ever had an opinion. You have a purpose before anyone had an opinion. Before anyone said you couldn't, Jesus says you can. May you come to see that prayer is powerful. May you come to realize that Jesus calls those who the world cancels. May you come to find that when we pray and believe in Jesus, Jesus already believes in you. Amen. Let's sing this song.